Saints, let's once more give our time over to the Lord. Holy Father, we now ask that you will help us as it was prayed earlier. That Lord, you be with us by your spirit, be with preacher, and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like it was said <clears throat> um, by Pastor Antonio, that we now are beginning a series on the Lord's Supper. And uh, this series is going to uh, be five lessons or sermons, essentially. And Pastor Antonio is right. I mean, I'm, I'm, going, I'm attempting to do something um, that is very difficult. And I don't think it's difficult in the sense of, like, I can just... I can present the sermon um, that I'm going to do uh, this afternoon and then be done with it. Um, but you know, when you when you when you when you know of various things um, and uh, various ways in which people have thought of the Lord's Supper, um, it's hard not to tackle those things as well. Um, so we're going to try to consider. Um, as much as we can, um, today we will consider the three tenses of the Lord's Supper. I'm just going to give you essentially the outline of, uh, of how we will look at the Lord's Supper uh, this month and um, a little bit of next. But the three tenses of the Lord's Supper. Um, and then next week we'll consider the body broken. Um, so we'll consider... Um, why do we use unleavened bread? Um, why did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Did Jesus Christ partake of the Lord's Supper himself? Um, we will consider various other questions of what does it mean for Christ to be present at the Supper? Um, why are Lutherans wrong? Why are Roman Catholics wrong? And uh, why in some strange way are we kind of saying almost, like we get to the same point when we talk about the Lord's Supper, but uh, we're coming at it at different angles. Um, and then after that, we will consider the blood poured out for us. And uh, we will consider the beauty of wine. Um, and uh, why uh, wine is uh, the element that the Lord used in the institution of the Supper. And why it should be used. And then next, we will consider the Lord's Supper, grace, and Christology. So when we talk about it being a means of grace... What do we mean by grace? What type of grace is being given to us? And um, um, I'm going to essentially argue that at the Lord's Supper, it is Jesus Christ who gives himself to us. We feed upon him so that we may become partaker more, more partakers of the divine nature. Um, and then lastly, we'll consider the beauty of the Lord's Supper. And then we'll, we'll deal with a few questions that maybe you might have had before, such as how come only members of a local congregation who are baptized can partake of the Lord's Supper. What's up with that? And the debate that happens with that. And should we partake of the Lord's Supper every single Sunday? Or why not just every month? Or every couple of months? Um, or every year or whatever. So those are the things that we will, we will consider. But today, again, we will consider the three tenses of the Lord's Supper. And um, just to be frank with you, the rest of the, the lectures and lessons on the Lord's Supper, um, I'm going to try to make them as least dense as possible. Um, but it's, it's quite hard because the Lord's Supper can get complicated really quickly. Um, 
really quickly. Um, I by no means understand everything that happens in the Lord's Supper. Um, I, I can give you, and we can throw out various um, metaphysical language to help us try to understand what's actually happening. Um, but Lutheran, Roman Catholic, um, um, Reformed, we all agree that it is a mystery. It is a mystery. How we feed upon Christ, we can speak of, but it's still a mystery at the end of the day. And you must have faith to believe it. Um, so this is why we say this is a genuine, to the T, article of faith. Okay? <clears throat> There's been much debate over the Lord's Supper. Should we call the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper? Should we call the Lord's Supper communion? Should we call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist? Um, all three are fine names. Uh, whether it's Eucharist, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's communion, um, all three are fine names. Um, but I will argue that I think the Lord's Supper is the most fitting and appropriate name. Um, but if you call the Lord's Supper, if you refer to it as, oh, yeah, I can't wait to go to church to partake of the Eucharist, um, all you're saying is, a celebration or thanksgiving. Okay, just because the Roman Catholics use the word doesn't mean that it's their word. And they came up with it. Right? It's just as when we use the word sacrament. Um, well, the Roman Catholic Church uses the word sacrament. They have seven sacraments. We have two. But it doesn't mean that we throw out the word sacrament. Sacrament is a beautiful word, which we will consider next Sunday afternoon. But there's been much debate. And the debate in, in, um, the debate over the Lord's Supper really comes down to the presence of Christ at the table. How is Christ present at the table? Is he, is he really present at the table? Um, what happens to the bread and the wine at the table? Um, as Roman Catholics might say, does the bread cease, does the bread and wine cease bring bread and wine and actually become the literal body and blood of the Lord? Is that what happens at the table? Or as Lutherans might believe, um, does the bread remain bread on the table, but what comes alongside of it is the Lord's body and blood? Um, does that happen as well? Um, or the reform view, which we will consider. But today we will consider the three tenses of scripture, of, of, um, the Lord's Supper. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, you must first and foremost think of it as a visible sermon. A visible sermon. So, you have a sermon being preached to you now. Pastor Antonio preached to you a sermon in the morning. But the Lord's Supper, what it does, um, and what I, at least for myself, what I'm, I'm unable to do is bring words to life to you so that your mind actually sees it happening. Pastor Antonio is really great at that. I'm not really good at those type of things. Thank God we have the Lord's Supper, though, because the Lord's Supper, it gives to us something that um, corresponds to our senses. We see bread, we see wine, we can taste it, we can touch it, we can feel it, right? Um, and these are the things that Christ instituted to signify something about Himself. So Thomas Watson and various other Reformed would talk about the Lord's Supper as a visible sermon. A, uh, uh, it, is, it is visibly preaching to you. Visibly preaching to you without words, right? Watson would, uh, Thomas Watson would also say that God, to help our faith, 
gives us not only an audible word, but gives us a visible sign. So Christ doesn't, uh, uh, Christ doesn't only give us the word of God preached, but also he gives to us the gospel in visible form. The gospel in invisible form. Uh, Herman Boving says, The Lord's Supper is a meal. The essential meal of the people, of, of God and His people. It is a sacrificial meal, par excellence, at which believers, and even, and even saying that as reformed, the Lord's Supper is a sacrificial meal. I mean, think of the debate over whether the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice itself. The Roman Catholic Church is going to say yes. The Reformed are going to say, many of the modern Reformed are going to say no. I actually think that it is a sacrifice. However, it is not the type of sacrifice that the Roman Catholic Church wants to say. And we'll get into that. But Herman Bobbing says it's a sacrificial, a sacrificial meal par excellence at which believers receive Christ himself as he gave his life for us. Jesus expresses this reality by the action of giving his disciples bread and wine as signs of his broken body shed for them to enjoy. So the three tenses of, of the Lord's Supper. And saints, when we get to this eventually, when we talk about, when we have the, the elements in our hands, and I say, our Pastor Antonio says, now let us contemplate what we are holding before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, there are many things we can think of, but these are good things um, to have at the forefront of your mind. So if you're asked like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to contemplate the body and blood of the Lord. What am I to think about? Here's one. The past tense. The past tense of the Lord's Supper. The past tense. So if you just imagine you're holding the elements in your hand, and you're trying to contemplate the Lord's Supper. The first aspect of the Lord's Supper is that we remember something from the past. And this uh, traditionally has been called the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. The memorial view. A lot of Reformed, um, yes, they want to say that it's more than a memorial, but it's not le anything less than a memorial as well. Um, we are looking back at a certain event. Um, and that event, saints, is none other than the death of Jesus, <clears throat> of Jesus Christ. So we're contemplating as we're holding the body and the bread and wine um, of, of, of the Lord's Supper. What do we think about first and foremost? Well, we can think about when Jesus Christ died for us. That's what we can think about first and foremost. This aspect, again, of the Lord's Supper has been known as the memorial view. And quite frankly, this is the dominant view of many churches. Uh, many churches only think that the Lord's Supper is merely just us looking back at what Christ has done for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 24-25, and, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what we see is Christ tells the disciples that when you partake of the body and blood of the Lord, um, you are to do it in remembrance of Him. Simply put. I mean, I, I can't slice that any other way. <laughs> you are to do that in remembrance of Jesus Christ. When the bread and wine were instituted... 
Christ did not institute the bread and wine because he knew that um, after afternoon service, there are going to be members of Christ's church that are going to be hungry and they need a snack. That is not why Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. Um, he didn't institute the Lord's Supper for many of us, myself at the top of the list, who are always hungry. And we just need something to put in our bellies. It is not a, it is not a after service before, you know, whatever we eat snack. And we are to think of it as a, as a, as a, as a snack, saints. But we are to think of it as a heavenly meal. It is a heavenly meal reserved for heavenly and kingdom people. Um, so that's how we are to think, of, think about it, saints. Um, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we gather together, we aren't to just see the bread and wine as bread and wine, but they're to point us to, to something further, something more substantial. And that is, they signify the body and blood of the Lord. The body and blood of the Lord. Now, whether they are the actual body and blood of the Lord, we'll answer that in the coming weeks. But first and foremost, we are to see that these things, they represent something. They represent the body and blood of the Lord. When the bread is broken, it points to the broken body of our Lord. And not just since the, 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 the body that was broken for the sake of the body to be broken, but the body that was broken for your sakes. The body that was broken for your sakes. Holding the bread in your hand, you're saying, this signifies when Jesus Christ was beaten and bruised for me. That's first and foremost, as Isaiah 42.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Christ's body was crushed on the behalf of sinners. And saints, when we consider the bread and when we hold it on our hands, it's to point us to that 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 awful day on Calvary, but also at the same time, the most glorious day in the history of man, when Jesus Christ was beaten and bruised, when the nails went into His hands and feet and hung there for our sakes. Again, uh, the, the, the crucifixion of Christ is an interesting thing because at, at one breath you can say it's the most awful thing that's ever happened in humanity. The eternal Son, the one who is innocent, the one who, is, who has never committed a sin, dies. But at the same time, it's the most glorious day in the history of mankind. Why? Because it is the eternal Son who has never committed a crime, who is holy, uh, uh, sinless. This one presents a worshipful act to the Father for the behalf of us. His people. Again, it's, it's the most awful day, but also at the same time the most glorious day. Because we preach, we preach a Savior who not only lived, but also died a violent and bloody death. And we cling to that blood. We, we need that blood, do we not? <clears throat> and this is what also the cup signifies. That Jesus Christ shed His blood, not for the sake of shedding His blood, Right, so we do things, but we do we, no, not, no, normally we do things for our own sake. Christ sheds his blood not for the sake of himself, because he's not a sinner. Christ sheds his blood for the sake of his people. 
So you're holding the bread in your hand, you're saying, man, this signifies when, when Christ's body was beaten for me, bruised for me. And then the blood, the, the, the wine, this signifies when Christ shed His blood for me. Jesus Christ says that this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which means that when, when Jesus Christ shed His blood over 2,000 years ago, on that, on that uh, Golgotha hill, He was instituting, inaugurating the new covenant. And a covenant which says, do this and live. Well, what's the doing? Well, it's not read your, read your, pray, uh, read your, read your Bible five times a day, pray ten times a day, come to church, never miss church, evangelize to all these people that you can, but it's simply believe upon me. How do we enter into the new covenant? Believing upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made a way to enter into this gracious covenant with God that says not do this and live in a sense of do work and live, but rather believe upon me and have eternal life. So saints, when we think about the cup and what it represents, we are to to think of ourselves like this cup represents and signifies that I do not need to earn my salvation. That's what, that's what we can think about when we, when we, we are holding the, the wine and the cup in our hands. That when I drink this, I'm uniting myself with the one sacrifice of Christ that was presented to the Father that says, I don't need to do anything to earn my salvation. But Christ has done everything. And similarly with the bread as well. You are eating it, and when you're doing so, you're uniting yourself, right? with that sacrifice of Christ at Calvary over 2,000 years ago. And you are in many ways amening that sacrifice. And that sacrifice in many ways is, 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 becomes yours because Christ died for you. <clears throat> we know this, saints, that in order for the justice of God to be appeased, although God could have forgiven us by the word of His power, uh, he has decreed that a perfect spotless blood sacrifice had to be offered up. In order for our sins to be forgiven, blood from a perfect and infinite sacrifice had to be shed. And saints, again, praise God that we do not have to offer ourselves to God. In a sense of a propitiatory sacrifice. We do offer ourselves up to God as a worshipful act of sacrifice, but but not in a sense of... I offer to you, God, myself, my holy self, all of my faculties. Now forgive me of my sins in light of me presenting myself to you. Praise God we don't have to do that. Praise God that none of us uh, have to all uh, own trucks and carry lambs and carry goats and carry any type of animal in, our, in the back of our pickup truck. Imagine that. Did we still have to do that? All of us coming to church in our Fords and our Toyotas, you know, and all of us... Put in the put in the the animal upon our shoulder and then presenting it to God. We don't have to do that, but we believe upon Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice for sins for us. So, saints, when we think about the cup, when we think about the wine, when we think about the what we are drinking, what we are saying is, and what what is signifying is the blood of Christ that washed our sins away. I mean, there there are there are many things. I mean, me and my wife, when we go out to dinner, 
whenever we come out to dinner <laughs> because of our, our children. But when we go out to dinner, and, and, and I'm sure many of you do the same thing. Over dinner, what's usually what you talk about? Well, for myself and my wife, we usually like to reminisce. Well, we like to talk about our wedding. We like to talk about, hey, you remember this time? And we laugh about that. And remember when Owen was this age and Kai was doing this or, or whatever? And then sometimes even too, we look at pictures of our wedding and, and, we, and we can look back and we can and put ourselves back into that place, right? And then reminisce and things like that. Well, saints, think about what, what God has left for us. A most, a most fitting and perfect remembrance of something that goes beyond you know, the, the, the second greatest day of all time for myself, which was my wedding day, it goes beyond that to its infinite power when Christ died for us. He doesn't just leave us with the Word of God that speaks of Christ's death. He leaves us something that we can see, touch, feel, taste. And when we do so, we're uniting ourselves to that one sacrifice that was offered up on Calvary's cross. <clears throat> now, why do we need to be reminded of the blood of Christ? Um, well, Paul says in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So the same Paul, it's Christ's blood that removes our punishment of sin. It's the blood of Christ that removes us from under the curse of the law and into the family of God. And saints, being reminded of the blood of Christ, of, of the body that was broken for us, essentially the death of Jesus Christ, it should strengthen our faith. It should strengthen our faith. Being reminded of the death of Christ should strengthen our faith because, simply put, at times, at many times, we have weak faith. All of us have weak faith. We have abiding sin. And at times we can feel that we are not of the faith. But saints, let us take comfort in the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson. Our sin should humble us because they must not discourage us to come from... Com- uh, our sin should humble us, but they must not discourage us from coming to Christ. I remember Pastor Antonio said a long time ago that there's, there's more grace in Christ and that He's willing to give to you than sin in us. That that sin does not overpower and overwhelm the grace of Christ. That sin does not win in this battle of the grace of Christ. But our sins, yes, should humble us, but they should never discourage us from coming to Christ. And saints, um, what we have at the Lord's Supper, and this is beautiful, what we have at the Lord's Supper and we'll talk about this at the very last sermon, is that Jesus Christ, open arms, is giving Himself to us. He's bidding us to come to Him. <clears throat> and what, is he, what, what do we do when we come to Him? Do we just come to Him and have a chat with Him? Do we come to Him and hug Him? Do we come to Him and talk about various things? We come to Him and we feast upon Him. We come to Him and we feast upon Him. Now we're going to get into, whoa, is that a like literal, corporeal, like I'm literally drinking? Am I literally eating? Like if you were to, like if I was to die, if you were to open up my stomach after I partake of the Lord's Supper, will you also see 
um, you know, Christ's blood mixed with my blood and his, you know, his, his body mixed in my body, will that happen? Um, no, I don't think so. But there is a real eating that happens. And we'll, we'll consider that soon. This is why historically, um, the Reformed have referred to the Lord's Supper as a seal of our faith. A seal of our faith. Now, I was talking to Pastor Antonio over the break. I said, man, you mentioned seals, um, and, uh, not animal seals, but, you know, seals. And, and, and you refer to it as the Holy Spirit is the seal, right? And so I don't want you to think that, well, <laughs> does it mean that we're actually getting more of the Holy Spirit? Since the Lord's Supper is a seal of our faith, but no, we don't have to think about that. What we have to think about is that the bread and wine, they, they guarantee it is, it is the Spirit sealing upon our souls the benefits of Christ. It is, it is, it is, it is Christ telling you, believer, you are mine and I am yours. He's reassuring you. This is why the Lord's Supper has been called, um, something that confirms our faith. Confirms our faith. This is why, this is why, uh, we are to come to the table and, and allow the Holy Spirit to seal Christ's ownership of you. So saying, if you are gonna, if you are gonna partake of the Lord's Supper this afternoon, remember this, that when you partake of the Supper, it is Jesus Christ. Literally, and hear me now, I'm not trying to, I don't like alien stuff, I don't like sci-fi stuff like that. So don't think that this is sci-fi-ish or, you know, extraterrestrial or weird. This is actually rooted in the church, but also in the scriptures. It is Jesus Christ saying to you, you are mine and I am yours. When we partake of the supper. This is a reassurance that Christ has given to us, saints, that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we are to have confidence that our sins have been forgiven by Christ. Okay, the next is the present tense. And these are actually much, much shorter, the present tense. Because because especially this point here, we're going to unpack this much uh, in detail. The Lord's Supper, yes, it is a memorial. The Lord's Supper, um, yes, is a proclamation of Christ's death. But also the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. A means of grace. So in the Lord's Supper, we look back at what Christ has done for us. We can look at it that way. So when I'm contemplating, when I'm holding the wine or the cup in my hand and holding the bread in my hand, I'm thinking about what Christ has done for me over 2,000 years ago. But also, um, we are to think about what's happening in the present. So just as if I were to look at my wedding picture, yes, it, it tells me something of what happened in the past, but it doesn't communicate to me anything in the future or in the present other than I'm married. But there, but there is nothing from the picture itself that's, that's giving me anything. What we have in a supper is we look back, but also Christ is giving us something. He's giving to us something, right? For the present. This is why the Lord's Supper has been called a means of grace for the people of God. Okay. What's a, what's a, the means of grace? What are they? <coughs> well, first we have to consider what's means. What are means? What is what are mean? What do means mean? <laughs> you can think of it like that. Well, very simply, and you know this, um, saints. What is the means um, that God has given to bright minds so that you don't have to sit on your bottom on the floor? 
we all are sitting on it, using it right now, which is a chair. A chair is a means, right, by which you do not have to sit on the floor. What is the means right now that I'm using to speak to you? Well, you can use, you can say my voice, but also this microphone. What's the means by which we communicate with one another? Um, if you lived in New York, I lived in California, how can we communicate with one another? Phone, email, letter, right? So those go-betweens between two parties are called means. We all know that, right? Um, now, what do we mean then when we say means of grace? The means of grace are the activities commanded by Christ through which the Spirit of Christ blesses the people of Christ. In other words, it's this. Jesus Christ uses ordinary means to communicate something to us. So, God wants to give grace to us. How can He give grace to us? Well, He can do it in many ways. But the ways that He's ordained, specifically for the church, is through the preached Word, right? Through prayer, but also through the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, um, and I would even add the reading of God's Word. These are things, they are delivery systems, by which God uses to bring to us grace. Okay, and I don't want you to get too lost here, right? So, again, think about the means by which we can communicate with one another. If you lived in New York, I lived in uh, California. Let's say, I want to talk to my wife, Leela, but she lives so far away. What's the means I can use? The telephone. Well, think of it like, think of it like that. God, the heaven and earth, right, of heaven and earth, wants to give to us grace, we're here on earth, how can we get grace from God? What's the middle, the go-between? Well, for our, our, our discussion for today, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper gives to us grace. Now, um, I'll, say, I will go, I'll get on a tangent. We'll talk about that later. Richard Barcelos defines the means of grace as the delivery systems God has instituted to bring grace. That is spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual health, spiritual fortitude, and spiritual blessings to needy souls of the people. We are needy souls. We need spiritual help. God has grace to give to us. How can it get to us? The Lord's Supper, amongst the other means of grace. The Lord's Supper. So when we're taking the Lord's Supper then, saints, yes, we're looking back, but also, this is why, this is why, you know, when you hear me pray, Lord, give to us grace. Because He has ordained to give to us grace. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not just merely bread and wine, they are means that God uses to not work, you know, work on us spiritually and give to us grace. Now, you might say, how do I, how, I can't see grace though. It's invisible. I, I can't see grace coming down from heaven. Like I wish, I wish we had a screen by which we can, we can see heaven and we can see kind of this grace stuff coming down from heaven to our souls and we can see the grace, you know, doing stuff in us. I mean, that would be helpful, right? Well, one of the ways we could think about grace working with, working within us is how you act on Monday. How you act on Tuesday. How you act on Wednesday. 
after the Lord's Supper, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about in the Lord's Supper when you are partaking and holding the elements? That's just a practical way. We'll get into more of that uh, later. But these blessings, um, what are these blessings then that we receive from um, these means? Well, the answer that the Reformed have said, um, and we'll expand upon this in, uh, in due time, um, is that through the means of grace, all the benefits of Christ's redemption are communicated to us. Simply put, when we say benefits of Christ's redemption, we're not to say that we're earning more justification. That we get the benefits of Christ so that we can be either re-justified or more justified. Saints, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are um, without doubt. You cannot be more, you cannot be less justified. So when we say that that God gives us grace, it's not that we can be um, saved in the sense of initial justification, but saved in the sense of sustaining perseverance that 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 God will hold us fast and that we will hold on to him so the lord's supper then is really just for our sanctification sanctification it's so that us and pastor antonio said this morning and so i'm going to say it for our deification for us to be more and conform more to the image of Christ. This is why the church fathers, uh, um, when they talk about the Lord's Supper, they, they talk about it as deifying food that deifies the soul. It's the food of God to give to the people of God so that they may be like God. Um, beautiful, beautiful way to consider the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper then, Christ gives to us grace the grace that He has merited for us in His humanity, He gives to us that grace um, to work on us spiritually. <clears throat> One of the ways, again, that Christ works on us spiritually is through the Lord's Supper. Scripturally, we see this in 1 Corinthians 10.16. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is a not a participation in the body of Christ. So these ordinary things, they signify a deeper spiritual reality that we are actually, Kononia, we are communing. We are participating. Remember we talked about participation in our deification, right? That we are becoming like Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ. This is why our confession says that the Lord's Supper is our spiritual nourishment. It's our spiritual nourishment. That is to say, when we partake of the Lord's Supper by faith, and there's much debate over this, um, but I take the, the standard Reformed, you know, Calvin view, is it's not that, it's not that, it's not that the Holy Spirit brings Christ and, and brings His blessings down to us. But rather, it is the Holy Spirit lifting our souls up to Christ in heaven. Now that's, that's kind of like a whoa <laughs> type moment, right? What am I saying? I'm saying that at the supper, how do we receive grace? The Holy Spirit takes our souls up to the ascended and seated Christ. And there, we commune and participate in Him. What does that mean? We feast upon Him. 
We become more like Him. That's what that means. Um, the other view is that, you know, the Holy Spirit brings it down, but I don't buy that. We'll talk about that later. Um, so, 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 this glorious truth, saints, is something that we should, we should really, um, take ownership of. What I mean by that is like, not just I know the fact, but the thing known actually becomes the know in the knower. It, it, it takes ownership in your mind that this is what actually, this is what's actually happening. Um, this is something that we are to continue to think about. It should heighten our view of the Lord's Supper. That the Lord's Supper is not just merely looking back, but it's Christ giving Himself to us. He's, he's, he's bidding us to come, come be, come be seated with me in heavenly places. <laughs> my body is here. My blood is here. Come feast upon me. <clears throat> so that you may be like me. Hermit Bobbing put it wonderful. He not only give, he not only gave himself for his own, but in the supper, those are my words, he also gives himself to his own. Isn't that beautiful? Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ gives himself to you, and at the supper, once again, he's giving himself to you. He gives to you himself. Okay, last, last one, future tense. <clears throat> in Mark, uh, 14.25, and here's your answer for those that say, well, did Jesus Christ also partake of the Lord's Supper? He says in Mark 14.25, Jesus also said, truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, again, that's also a big debate. Did Jesus Christ partake of his own meal? Did he partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, he says that, I will not drink it again, which implies that he already drank it. And ate of it. That he won't do it again. This thing won't happen again until we drink it in the kingdom of God. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. From the words of Christ and the Apostle Paul, it's clear that the Lord's Supper is pointing us forward to something else. And this is great, right? I mean... Um, I'm just going to keep using the example. My wedding picture, it doesn't point to anything greater in the future. Because there's once going... Leela, I will look for you in heaven, I promise. There's going to be a day when I will not be married to Leela. Because it's not... Why? Because it's not fitting that male and female should be married in heaven because the bride and the groom will be together. That's one way you can think about it, Right? So it's not pointing to a, a future in which we will be, you know, married in heaven, right? But the Lord's Supper points to a future. It points us to something grand. Uh, John gives us this picture in Revelation 19, 6-9. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like a sound of many uh, pearls and thunder, Appeal the thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride have made herself ready. Um, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So, what we see then is, what is the Lord's Supper signifying? The Lord's Supper is envisioned as a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. For a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. Now, what's this, what's this great day? Think of this, think, I mean, think of this saints, uh, this day, saints, when Jesus Christ and the bride will finally be together. That, that is what this here, this bread and this cup signifies. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are looking with great anticipation to that new day, a day when God's kingdom will be fully realized. When, when the kingdom of glory and the kingdom of grace will finally meet as one. <clears throat> and what will we do? We're going to share a meal together. Um, Pastor Antonio will talk about whether this is literal, <laughs> symbolic, or any, any of those things. But there's going to be a celebration that happens when we are with our Christ. And what this means, saints, apart from all the um, specifics of it, the Lord's Supper. I mean, if you if you want to, if you want, there are many things in this life that are causing that cause us to say, "Man, I don't know about how the future is going to be." COVID, Biden. If you like Biden, sorry. If you you know, I think Biden's okay. It's fine. Local leaders, right? We're aging. Things are not going the way we want to. Our, you know, I, I tell my wife all the time, if there's one thing I would want in this whole world, it's new bones. Now, I'm always aching everywhere. Things, it seems, apparently are not going, or the future doesn't look bright. But saints, the Lord's Supper tells us that history is moving somewhere. That, that history is going to move to this grand, climactic time when Christ will have the victory over all the earth and it will be presently seen. So the Lord's Supper tells us that, that, that Christ will win at the very end. This time when the kingdom of God and the people of God will be fully realized and they will be with their king. So the Lord's Supper teaches us, saints, that Christ that our triune God will win. Again, John says in Revelation, the multitudes of people say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The Lord teaches us, and it preaches to us, that although we have troubles in this world, that take heed because Christ has and He will overcome the world. Christ will have victory in the end. That the King's enemies will be the King's footstool. Christ will have victory in the end, saints. And at the consummation of all things, again, what will the kingdom, what will the, the king do with his kingdom people? Will they partake of a kingdom meal together? So what we have then at the Lord's Supper is we have a foretaste of a great banquet that's to come. That the bread and the wine are their miniature rehearsals of what will be the greatest celebration in all of history. That is the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper then, saints, what is it doing? It's preparing you for such celebration. 
That's what it's doing. That, that is why we are to come to the Lord's Supper, yes, with intensity, but also with great anticipation. Because we are to pray that this is the last time we ever have to do this because we want to be with our King. We want the real thing. One theologian has said the Lord's Supper is our engagement ring from Christ. For it teaches us that Jesus Christ will come back for us. What's the great promise? What's the great visible sign by which we know Christ will come back for us? He left for us a a meal that signifies He will come back for us. That you will not have to partake of this much longer. But He will come for us. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are believing that our groom will come for us one day and that our marriage will be complete. So saints, in summary, even right right when we, uh, in just a few moments, partake of the Lord's Supper, when you're holding the elements in your hand, yes, praise God, we have the songs going on. and we, You can sing the songs. But contemplate. Really think about Jesus dying for you. Really think about Jesus right now working on you. And also really think about Jesus coming back for you. You have a lot to think about. You don't have to do it all at once. But those are the things that we are to think about, saints. And those are the things that... Um, the These are the three tenses of the Lord's Supper. I want to end with one last quote from Herman Bavink. It's a short quote. Why was the Lord's... Uh, uh, why was the Lord's Supper instituted? He says, Christ instituted the Supper as a good for His church. This is good for our souls, uh, and we so desperately need it. Just as you need the, the hearing and the preaching of the Word, saints, we need to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in the coming weeks, we're going to open this thing up much more.